The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Our scripture lesson this afternoon is in the book of Hebrews. You may want to turn and follow the reading, reading from chapter 9, from the beginning of the chapter. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthen sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And may the Lord bless his word to our hearts on this afternoon. I'd like to say what a delight it is to be back at Indian Springs. I think most of you know something of what this place has meant to me across the years. It's a holy place for us. There are some holy places in the world. And the man who has some holy places in his life is incredibly blessed. There are a lot of wonderful things about Indian Springs. We come back with our family. Last night, uh, an old friend turned to me and said, My daughter is here, and my son-in-law, and my grandchildren, and another daughter coming next week. And I found at the end of the service last night, I looked over, and there were two kneeling here. And one was tiny, she's five years of age, and her name is Susanna. And the larger one kneeling with her is our oldest daughter, Beth. And so I slipped over and knelt down with Beth and Susanna. And Beth looked up and said, Susanna just said she wanted Jesus to teach her how to love him more. And so she wanted to come forward so that she could love Jesus more. Now, where else do you get that kind of family relationship? But it's a place where friendships are renewed, too. Last night, I looked across at Paul Barrett, and he and I were friends when 
We were back in the struggles of college. He taught me to preach in the Nicholasville Mission. He came to me and said, Dennis, I have a mission and uh, I need somebody to help me. Will you come preach alternate Sundays with me? I said, I'm not called to preach. Well, he said, can you teach a Sunday school class? And I said, yes, I can teach a Sunday school class. A layman can do that. And so he said, well, since you're going to teach the Sunday school class, speak in the jail after Sunday school. And so I found myself preaching in the Nicholasville jail, and that took the place of all the homiletics courses and speech courses that I was supposed to have. But where do you get friendships like that? And there's something marvelous that just happens inside me when I look across it. Uh, Paul Barrett or Reggie Edenfield or some many of the rest of you that are here. And the wonderful thing is that right in the middle of these family renewals and right in the middle of these friendship renewals, there is that presence of Christ because it is he who makes these holy and sacred the way they are. He alone can hallow anything. And so if you ever find a holy place, it'll be because he is there. And if you ever find a holy relationship, it will be because he is in the middle of it. Now, you know, there are places that develop the name holy that some way or other in the course of time lose them, lose the holiness out of them. And there are relationships that have something sacred in them that in the course of time lose the sanctity out of those relationships. The reason is because there is nothing holy in itself. Anything is only holy when it is related to the Holy One. And the problem with him is his invisibility. You can't see him, and so you don't always have physical ways of checking out his presence. He's a little bit like oxygen. When he's there, you live. And when he's gone, you may not know when he went, but you know that there's something wrong after he has departed. I'm convinced that that is the reason the Bible is so careful to explain to us so much about God, so much about walking with him, and so much about worship. It seems that God is determined that if there is any way possible, he's going to break through into hearts like yours and mine and let us know what is necessary so that we can know when we are in communion with him, when he is with us, and when we are with him. I think that's the reason that in the Old Testament there are those long sections that deal with the tabernacle, those sections that most of us don't enjoy reading too much. You will notice, though, that the writer of the book of Hebrews, writing after the death of Christ, writing in the midst of the battles of the early church, when he wanted to speak about the glory of Christ and the excellence of Christ, found himself going back to take the patterns laid down in the Old Testament, and he used those Old Testament patterns to explain to us about Jesus, the divine Son of God, the one whom the devils call the Holy One of God. You will remember that the tabernacle was the center of the people of God's life. Whenever they camped, there were three tribes to the west and there were three tribes to the east. 
There were three tribes to the south, there were three tribes to the north, and the tabernacle was in the middle because God dwelt in the tabernacle and God wanted to be right in the middle, in the center of the life of his people. It was an interesting thing. It was an area 150 feet by 75 with a linen curtain that was seven and a half feet high surrounding it, and that linen curtain was white. I'm sure the whiteness was to let anyone know that what was beyond that wall was holy and clean. You will remember that that tabernacle had three sections to it. There was an outer court that had in it two pieces of furniture. One of them was a brass altar. We speak of it as the brazen altar. That was the place where an animal sacrifice was made. It was a bloody place, a lot of ashes there, because they would take the animals, kill them, and burn them there as a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel, including the sins of the priests. There was a second item, which was the laver, which was a container full of water, where the priests and the Levites were able to wash themselves and cleanse themselves in order to be ready to make those sacrifices and to cleanse themselves after they had made them. Now, I don't think there is any question but that those two pieces of furniture speak very distinctly to us. There is no way for fellowship with God without an atonement for your sins and mine. The scripture is clear that the only way into the presence of the Holy One for us unholy people is through the blood of the everlasting covenant, through the blood of our Redeemer. And it is not only to provide an atonement for our sins, it is to provide a cleansing for us, because they that bear the vessels of the Lord are to be clean, and if we are to stand in his presence, if we are to commune with him, it is necessary that we ourselves be clean in a cleansing that only he can give. You will remember that the actual building had, or the tent had, two rooms in it. There was an outer room that was called a holy place. There the priest came. There were three items in it, the golden lampstand, the menorah, the sevenfold lampstand that gave out its light. You know that sevenfold lampstand is used so oftentimes in Israeli literature. There was the table of the presence or the table of the showbread, and there was the altar of incense that represented that continual need for the prayers of the people of God to arise. But this afternoon I want to go beyond that, beyond the second curtain, into the holy of holies, the most holy place. You will remember that that was not easy to get to, and there were not many that made it. You will remember that only the chief priest could enter there, and he could enter only once a year. Now, I do not think for a minute that God was saying, I want to be hidden from people so they cannot find me. God is not in the business of hiding from people because he is in the business of seeking people. But there are two perpetual dangers for you and me. One of them is that we think we've found God when we really haven't. And it is very easy for us to find an idol and a substitute for the living God 
and think we have found God when we haven't. And so there is this careful explanation in the Old Testament to let you know that the God that we worship is not a God that is found easily. A great price has to be paid for intimate fellowship, intimate communion with him. Now, the second is that not only is it possible to have a wrong God, but uh, the second is that there is not any easy way other than through the kind of thing that we heard about this morning where a person comes to total and exclusive devotion to God for us to have fellowship with him. So in the Old Testament you will find it is not easy. So that in the New Testament, when he opens the gate wide for all men, we will not come to the conclusion that we think we found him when we only think we have, or we take an alternative way to the way which he has given to us. Now, it's significant to me that in that most holy place, God said, there is the place that I will meet with you. There was one piece of furniture in that most holy place, an inner room if you will remember. It was called the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a box, just simply a rectangular box made out of wood overlaid with gold. It was a little better than three feet long, and it was a little better than two feet high and two feet wide. And there it sat at the center, covered over with gold, and on each end of that box was a cherubim a creature representing the holiness of God and the glory of God, on each end with a wing reaching out to the edge of the room, meeting over the mercy seat, over the covering of the ark. And God said, between the cherubim and over that ark, over that box, I will dwell and there I will meet you. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about intimate communion with God. He's saying that people under the old covenant knew God, but when Jesus came, he wanted to make it possible for most of us to know him in an infinitely more tender and intimate way than people before. And so he begins to talk about the glory of the new covenant, the covenant which Christ gave, which takes the place of the covenant given through Moses, but it's significant that there is enough continuity between the two covenants that he takes the old covenant and its instruments to explain the new. Now this afternoon, quickly if I can, I'd like to talk about three items that were in that box over which God said, I will dwell and where I will meet you. There, there was to be face-to-face confrontation, face-to-face fellowship with God. Now, I would like to know that kind of intimacy with God. I would like to have the kind of intimacy that Christ died to give to me with his Father, the Holy One. Now, what are the elements that ought to be in my life? I think those three things speak to us. You will remember we read here in the passage, he said, the first thing that was in that box, so that every time the chief priest came in on the high day of atonement, he was reminded of these things, even years after they were placed there. The first thing was a golden urn filled with manna. 
Now, with this audience, I don't need to tell you what the manna was. There are students that come to Asbury that I do need to tell about what the manna was. But uh, that's the kind of world in which we live, and that's the nature of the church in our day. We've lost our understanding of the great history that is ours and the great story of redemption that we have. But there was that golden urn, golden pot filled with manna. Now, why was that kept there? I don't think there is any question but that it was to be a perpetual testimony to the people of God. Bread, and that's what manna was, bread is a way of life for us, is it not? And it was there to let Israel know that their life is in God, it comes from God, and that every one of us is totally dependent for our continued existence upon him. You know, I think that's the reason that we begin every meal with a grace, or at least we ought to. It is a perpetual reminder to us when we sit down in front of our food to remember that we may have bought it, but we didn't produce it. We may be farmers and gardeners, and we may have produced it, but it's not the work of our hands. If we live, our life comes from the one whom we meet in that most holy place. Now, that's the difference between a pagan and a true believer, because we know that if we have a moment, if we have an hour, if we have a day, if we have an instant of time, it all is a gift from him, and if that life that we have is maintained, it comes out of our dependence upon him. You will notice it in the Lord's Prayer. We are told to pray, and it is a prayer. I wonder if we should not pray it daily. One of the prayer petitions within it is, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, you may go to Kroger's to get it, but it comes from him, and if he decided, Kroger's wouldn't have it for you to get, or for me to get. I think some of us have been reminded of that a bit this summer. I had a friend who was in the Navy in the Second World War. And Malloy told me, he said, I found Christ before I went in the Navy, and I wondered how I would survive in an alien environment, at least one not too sympathetic to Christians. So he said, when I went into the mess hall the first time, he said, I took a little time and looked around, and I finally spotted one sailor who, as he sat down before his food, bowed his head. I said, there's my brother. And I sought him out, and that began a very precious fellowship during my Navy days with my brothers in Christ. Now, we need daily to remember that if we live, our life comes from him. But it was more than just a testimony about our regular dependence upon him and his regular provision for us. It was a testimony to his special provision for us. And there are those moments when he acts miraculously, supernaturally, in a special way to care for us, his own. It would be interesting if we had the time to take in a group like this and just find the stories in your lives, individually, of the times when in an unnatural way, God did something to save you and maintain you when natural means were not enough. Of course, that's consistent with the manna, isn't it? 
Israel in a wilderness where there was no way to get food. They were hungry, and God said, I will feed you out of the very atmosphere that is around you. Nothing will become something. I'm the God can, that can do that because I care for my own. Now, I don't know about you, but I've taken courage from that every time I've started to stick my neck out in any way that endangered my security. I'm glad that somewhere early in my life, people told me that God will take care of his own. And if he can't do it in natural, regular means, he'll do it in extraordinary ways. I remember I came to a place in my life where God said, it's time for you to move. And I said, Lord, there's no place to go. And he said, that's my problem. But you move. And I remember with some hesitancy, I resigned. And Elsie said, Where, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. And we had five children. And I remember the day I got my last check. I went uh, and I had to work an extra month because of a previous commitment. So I was thinking, when I get that check today, now I've got another month before there'll be any more income and then I've got to find a way to live. So when I went to the mailbox that day, I had a particular interest in that mailbox. And there it was, my last check from my employer. And so I reached in, pulled out the mail, saw that envelope, opened it, and there was a check in it. Then I flicked through the rest of the mail, really not expecting anything but ordinary mail. One envelope, very thin. I wondered if there was anything in it, it was so thin. I opened it up. There was one slip of paper, which was a check for $2,113.13. And I looked at it. I looked at the name on the check and recognized it immediately. It was a fellow I prayed with at the foot of a bed in a motel in Fort Myers, Florida. He'd never sent me one before. And you know, I don't think he ever sent me one again. And I picked up the telephone and said, Johnny, what's the check for? I'll never forget. He said, beats me. I said, Johnny, what am I supposed to do with it? I don't know. I said, Johnny, why did you send it? He said, I had a little extra and the Lord said you needed it. That was my next month's survival. God wants to remind us that he takes care of his own. It's the first item mentioned in the list. God takes care of his own. That's the only reason he can afford to say to us, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. I'd be interested as you come to camp meeting this time, can you look back as part of your worship for him, motivated by the fact that there have been days in your life when he did the unnatural, he did beyond the ordinary, he did the extraordinary, and that's the only reason you're here today. He takes care of his own special provision. Now, there was a second thing. 
It was Aaron's rod. We could spend a long time on that, so we'll just skip the high spots. I don't have to do anything more than mention what it was, Aaron's rod, before you begin to think. You know, it's significant that it was Moses' rod, too, as best I can find reading the text. If you will read the book of Exodus carefully, it just oscillates between saying, Moses, lift up your hand, raise your rod, and then it says, and Moses said to Aaron, raise the rod. So it is obviously, it seems to me, that rod that symbolizes the conflict between the Lord God of Israel and Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt, and it is that rod that symbolizes the deliverance of God's people from bondage, from enslavement. You remember the beginning of the story. It was at the burning bush. And God said to Moses, what's that in your hand? And he said, it's my staff. I use it to protect myself from, from the wild beasts. I use it for security purposes. I use it for stability when the walking is more difficult. It's very important to me, and God said, throw it down. It's interesting. He wants to be our protection. He wants to be our stability. He wants to be our security. God said, throw it down, and he threw it down, and it became a snake. And you know that story and love it, too, when God said, now pick it up. And he did what you would have done. If he had to pick it up, he'd start at the right end. So he picked it up by the tail and it became a rod again. Now God was preparing him to say, I'm not an ordinary God and I can do extraordinary things. And since I can do extraordinary things, it's right for me to ask you to do extraordinary things for me. Now he said, take this rod and go challenge the most powerful man and the most powerful political force in the world. And one sheep herder with that rod and the God of Moses went. You will remember what happened. It turned the river Nile into blood. It filled the king's bed with frogs. It filled the atmosphere with gnats and then flies. It brought plague on all of the cattle and the livestock, it brought boils on every Egyptian, it brought hail where it didn't rain, it brought locusts that cleaned the countryside, and it brought darkness, and then it brought death. But while it was a symbol of judgment on Egypt, it was a symbol of deliverance for Israel, because it was that rod that Moses lifted when he came to the Red Sea, and there was the Egyptian army behind him and the Red Sea in front of him. And as he raised that rod, the waters parted and they were delivered, set free. Their deliverance was on its way. Now, you know, I think what he's saying is that when you come into my presence, the person who can have fellowship with me is a person who is experienced my power of redemption and deliverance. I don't know about you, but I went to church a long time before I ever worshipped. When I was 13 down here in the 
young people's tabernacle. And after one of the morning Bible studies, Mother Clark took me to one side and said, got me alone, very much the lady, and respectful of me, got me where no one would hear me, like Buddy Luce who was there. George got me alone so I wouldn't be embarrassed. She said, Dennis, are you a Christian? And I said, oh, no. Oh, no. If it had been my mother, I'd have lied to her. Been my Sunday school teacher, I'd have lied to her. But how do you lie to Mother Clark? And so I said, oh, no. She said, wouldn't you like to be? And I said, who wouldn't? Of course, anybody in his right mind would like to be. And she prayed, and the change came. I remember I went home, back to North Carolina. And the next Sunday, we were sitting in church, and the, and the pastor announced that we were going to sing a hymn, and I'd never paid any attention to hymns before. I sang them, but I didn't know any of the words. I knew them by heart, but I didn't know any of the words. And so I found myself staring at that song. It said, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. I thought, wonder why we never sang that one before. That was a Methodist church. It was number one in the hymnal, you know. But for the first time, I knew what deliverance meant, and that was the basis for worship. Do you know you'll never worship Him until you've been delivered? You will never worship God until you know deliverance too. I was interviewing a prospective faculty member. Those are usually fascinating experiences. And this one was a lady, Ph.D., in television communications, never been on our campus before. And my business to see that uh, she belonged at Asbury, and I finally looked at her and said, Would you tell me how you became a Christian? And she looked at me and said, Well, you know, it's quite a story. She said, I grew up in a Christian home in a Baptist church. Very early, I walked the aisles in an evangelistic meeting, did it more than once. I went away to college and was very active in campus crusades. Then she said, I graduated and got out into the secular world. And she said, alcohol got me. She said, you know, I just started on that descent downward. And one night I came into my room in deep depression and in deep despair. I crawled in bed and I cried out, Oh God, can you help me? And she said, you know, I wasn't ready for what happened. Because he heard me and he did. He said, you know what I noticed first? About halfway through the next day, I noticed he'd given me a new language. I hadn't even repented of my swearing and profanity. But I found I couldn't do it anymore. I was set free and I had a new tongue. And she said, I don't believe it was three weeks until I was delivered from my alcohol. She said, you know, I went to church regularly, and so I decided I ought to share. So I told them that I had recommitted my life to Christ. And she said, I kept talking about recommitment, 
And then one day the Lord said to me, be honest. And then she said, I decided I needed to be honest. I didn't recommit my life that night. He saved me. And it was the first time I'd ever really been born again. And my whole world was different. Now, if we're to have fellowship with him, we have to know the power of God in deliverance and redemption within us. Now, that brings us to the third thing. Those tables of the law. Those two stones on which God, with his own finger, which I think represents the Holy Spirit, he inscribed the Ten Commandments, the basic moral law that was given to uh, Israel, to God's people there. Now, uh, there is a tradition among the rabbis that it was the two broken tables of the law. You will remember when Moses came down, he found the people of Israel celebrating riotously and sinfully, and so he threw the tablets down and they were broken. There is a rabbinic tradition that those were the tablets that were put in the Ark of the Covenant so that any time that a Jew thought about access to God, he knew that he would stand before God in the presence of a moral law that he himself had broken. You see, the fellowship for God for those of us in this world is for sinners. There's nobody else that's going to be there because all of us have sinned and broken his law. Now, why are those tablets there for man to meet God, for God's people to meet him? You know, nobody ever came in the old covenant into the immediate presence of God without being in the presence of the moral law. And do you know that's true in the new covenant too? I had a lady who called me one day and asked me if I'd come to see her, and I went. And I said, what's the trouble? She was in deep trouble. And she said, it's that lousy Bible class of yours, Ken Law. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I thought it was buried and long forgotten 18 years ago. But when I got in that Bible class of yours, there it was as real as if I'd committed it yesterday. You know, that was the way it was Zacchaeus. He said to Jesus, I want you to go home with me for lunch. And before the day was out, he had to pay his debts and straighten out his ethical moral life. Do you know that nobody can meet God without straightening out his life morally, ethically? The Bible's rather clear. Adam and Eve, God said, I've got only one rule for you. Sometimes we think he has too many, but if he had only one, it'd be the same. God said, one rule for you, and they broke it. And then he came down to commune with them, to fellowship with them. They were brighter than many of us. They were closer to original righteousness than many of us. There are many of us that think that we can fellowship with God with disobedience in our lives. I dare you to read 1 John if you think that. 
the mark of the ability to have fellowship with God is walking in the light, not in the darkness. And so Adam and Eve hid from him. And if you and I are to have fellowship with him, we've got to be rightly related to him morally and ethically, spiritually. Now, what does that mean? I want to say, here is where I think we come to the whole question of holiness and of sanctification. You see, uh, the scripture says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. What is the moral law? It is simply a reflection of the holy nature of the God whom I need and the God whom you need. And the thing I'm interested in is the fact that it is inevitable that anybody who is ultimately to know God is going to have to come to grips with the demands of God morally and ethically and spiritually upon us. Because there it is, it lets us know what he's like. And if we're going to know him, we've got to come to terms with it. You know... uh, When we begin to walk with him, he speaks to us about those clear transgressions, the lie we told, and then the lie we told to cover up the lie we told, and then the lie we told to cover up that lie, or what we took or something else, or infidelities or something. We begin with those external transgressions, but then you come to know him. And when you come to know him and begin to walk with him, you find that there's a power in new birth that breaks the hold of those external sins. Then you find that deep within your spirit, there's that sinfulness, that self-centeredness and self-seeking and self-defending, that which uh, when you look at it and it's brought to your attention, you know the defilement that's there and you wish you could be clean inside the way you're trying to be outside. Potential for sin in the human heart is great, isn't it? I remember a lawyer who turned to me one day in confession, and he said, Dennis, he was on the board of one of our Methodist institutions, board of trustees. He was the head layman in his Methodist church in one of our cities in our part of the country prominent attorney, and he said, Dennis, I walked into my living room one day and my wife was in the arms of another man. He said, I learned something about my wife, and I learned something about my friend, but the most bitter thing I learned was what I learned about me. You see, I was a lawyer. And what I suddenly found was that I had murder, murder in my heart. And if I could have found him right, I would have killed him. You know, as he told me that story, I thought back to early days of my ministry in Flint, Michigan, in a Methodist church there, Bethlehem Methodist Church. The pastor introduced me to a day laborer, manual worker, in his congregation. There was a joy about him and a freedom about him and a love about him 
and a passion about him that made me uh, just uh, want to know him better. And I remember the pastor gave me an opportunity. And so I said, tell me about your walk with God. And he told me. I'll never forget this part. He said, one of my best friends stole my wife away from me. And he said, when he stole her, he said, you know, at first I hated my wife. And then he said, I hated him. And then he said, I talked about her sin and I talked to God about his sin. And then God said, but what about your sin? Oh, he said, I'm the sinned against one. God said, yes, you're sinned against, but you're also the sinning one. And he said, what do you mean? He said, look at the hatred in your heart toward that man and toward your wife. And you'll never be clean until you love him and love her again. He said, you know, God wouldn't let me off the hook. So he said, I took my little eight-year-old girl that my wife had deserted. And we got on a Greyhound bus and we rode 300 miles. And I found myself in the evening knocking on the door of my friend who had stolen my wife and my wife was in the house. He said, when my friend opened the door and saw me, he stepped back in horror and waited to be shot. He said, my wife was there cowering in the same way. He said, I burst into tears. And as I burst into tears, he said, I walked in and said, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. You have to do something for me. And they said, us do something for you? And he said, yes. He said, you have to forgive me for the hatred that I've carried in my heart toward you. And you know, he looked at me, he was one of the freest souls I have ever met. Do you know, I believe that somewhere if a man's going to walk with God, he's got to deal with this side of it as well as the outside. You see, that's what I find in Hebrews. You know what the book of Hebrews said? It says in explaining what Jesus came to do, he says... The author says he'll establish a new covenant. In the old covenant, the law was on tables of stone in a box. But what Jesus wants to do is take it out of the tables of stone and write it in your heart so that you do it not because an external force says you walk, but because there's something within your heart that says that's right and I want to do right. That's holy, and I want to be holy. That's clean, and I want to be clean. And do you know, I don't believe there is ultimately any other access to God eternally than through that kind of work of grace within our hearts. My question in closing is this. Is there any aspect of God's claims on you in your heart that you've never really settled? Is there any matter of obedience within your heart? 
Is there any matter of uncleanness within your heart that he's laid his finger on and you know it's there and he wants to take it away? I want to say the one that parted the Red Sea, the one that delivered Israel, he can deliver you, he can deliver me, he can deliver us from the bondage of sin and he can set us free. That's what he came to do. And when we let him do it, it's amazing. Then is when we know that face to face, heart to heart, fellowship and communion with him. Then is when we're clean. I'd like to ask, are you? That's why we have camp meeting. We live in a world that is defiled and defiling. We live in a world that is perverted and perverting. Very easy for us in the ordinary routines of life to get our eyes off him and begin to let the unclean, what God does not want, to take up its residence within our hearts. Wife may not know it. Our husband may not know it. Our children, our parents may not know it. But we know that deep within there's something God still wants to deal with. Somewhere you have to face it. We have to face it if we are to keep communion with him. That's the reason I believe in what we talk about when we talk about holiness. He's the Holy One and he wants me to be like him. As we begin this camp, let him speak, let him search, let him dig, let him lay bare, let him uncover, and as he lays bare and uncovers, let him cleanse and let him set us free. Shall we bow our heads together? Our Father, we thank you that you are the Holy One. You're the one who gives us all that we have that's good. You meet our every need. You have the power to deliver and to redeem us. And you've made very clear the content of what you want that redemption to be. To where we come to the place where you are the God of gods within us. And we love you with all of our hearts. And where when we look at our brother or our sister, we have a passionate concern for his or her well-being even before our own. That's the way you were when you were among us, and you want to make us like you. Make us good students this week, and make us good listeners and hearers and obeyers of the Word as the Spirit speaks, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at TitusWomen.org.